sometimes scenes are so real, they, they, they are real essentially. As Murray points out, you know, get an actual employee, get someone who actually does that. And without even knowing that, you kind of sort of know it as you watch that scene. They go into a liquor store and the line, it's not just the staging of it, it's the timing, it's the intonation. This is where a director has a really sensitive ear to how a line is delivered and the timing of it. You don't want to hold a scene like that too long, but by the same token, you don't want to rush it. That's an innate skill that I think Alexander Payne has. Let the scene play out at what I'm calling natural length. Hello and welcome to At The Movies with Mike and Marie, a show where two film professors talk about movies. I'm Marie Westhaver. And I'm Mike Giuliano. And today we're going to talk about The Holdovers and Napoleon, two very much anticipated movies, starting with The Holdovers. So, Mike, I would have gone to see it just based on the fact that it has Paul Giamatti in it. It's an Alexander Payne movie. I know you're a fan of his work. I have a lot of reactions to this film, which I absolutely love. But I went into it knowing I would love it because it has Paul Giamatti in it. And it's a movie about, you know, three shipwrecked people over Christmas vacation when set in a boarding school and not everybody gets to go home. So with that launching pad, Mike, where do you want to start with this movie? Well, Marie, as you mentioned, one of the most notable things about it is it's the first time that the director, Alexander Payne, and the actor, Paul Giamatti, have worked together since Sideways, way back in 2004. So that was such a successful pairing. Whatever that chemistry is between a director and an actor, they've got it. I mean, they, they work in such perfect synchronization. And just to sort of set the scene by way of why you and I both like this director, Alexander Peter Payne has directed seven previous films, and the roll call of the states, if you will, the, the roll call here would be um, Citizen Ruth, Election, then Sideways, About Schmidt, uh, The Descendants, Nebraska, and Downsizing. So that's a really good track record, you know, for, for a director to have. Um, oftentimes he's pegged as being very cynical, sardonic, uh, you know, knowing, but not in the most cheerful way sometimes. And, and maybe that's why for myself as a cynic, I like him. But the point I would make here is that I think this current film, The Holdovers, um, strikes the right balance between cynicism and sweetness. The film has, has some acerbic observations, and I always smile and laugh at those, but there's genuine heartfelt content here. And uh, if you're looking for, for a story, as in like car chases and explosions and this and that, it's, it ain't the film for you in that case, because it really is more of a character study. And it's really a very basic one in the sense of, you know, as Marie said, it's a hoity-toity private uh, boarding school, um, actually shot in Massachusetts, so a lot of snow. And it's Christmas holiday. And there are some contrivances, at, which I think are readily granted. In other words, it does happen occasionally that a kid can't go home for the holidays, the parents this or that, whatever. Uh, and so uh, initially there's a, a handful of kids who are left behind and the teacher played by Paul Giamatti, uh, this curmudgeonly, you got to use that word for him, this curmudgeonly mm -hmm. teacher of ancient cultures, ancient civilizations. He's kind of ancient in, in his own way in terms of his attitudes and his personality. Um, but anyway, he's been designated to, to be the babysitter. Uh, he and the cook, basically, like almost like the only two people left on campus. But the contrivances is, and I don't want to give away too much in the plot to the extent there is one, but it's contrived so that it turns out there's basically just this one teacher and, and the cook and, and one kid. And the kid is played by Dominic Sessa, who had never been in a movie before. I mean, he totally was just like found in a, in, in a casting call at private schools. And you know what? And the director said this about him. He called him a natural. And, and what he meant by that was 
almost all actors, even really good ones, will telegraph to some extent. No, I'm happy. No, I'm sad. You hit the button. You hit the emotion. This kid is such a natural. When the camera's on close-ups with him, you just feel he's totally invested in the character. You don't feel like it's an actor giving you that character. He's that kid. And, you know, I, I hope that, you know, both actors get Academy Award nominations and the film's going to get a lot of them. It's one of the best films of the year. But this kid's such a natural. He holds his own with Paul Giamatti, which is no small feat. So um, even though the film does have a relatively long running time, I appreciated that. I settled in with it. I enjoyed spending time with these characters, partly because they could be so disagreeable. You know, the film was honest that way. So Marie and I, I think I think we share our, our sense of real admiration for this film. Well, you know, I am a sucker for this kind of topic. You said anything in a boarding school, you know, like Dead Poets Society. I mean, I'm sitting down already ready to be immersed in that world. And of course, how can we not sympathize with the character Paul Giamatti is playing, which is a teacher? So a lot of the things that he says and does are outrageous, and I can't imagine saying or doing them. But there is an element of fun to that that I really enjoyed. And I loved the atmosphere that they created with this film. Apparently, the whole film was shot in actual locations, no sets or sound stages. So I think that kind of gives it a sense of reality. And there's even a point in the shot with the liquor store, the clerk says, you know, here you go, killer, as he hands a package to Paul Giamatti's character. It's an actual employee of the liquor store that they're using in the film. So there's all these kind of moments when you find out later that there's some underlying truth to it that I think kind of underpin the film and make it feel very authentic, even though, like you say, there's a few things that are sort of contrived to move the story along. I would add that the actress playing the cook, Divine Joy Randolph, also turns in an amazing performance. And I think she's got a shot at a Academy Award nomination as well. So I, I called them, you know, three shipwrecked people. But that is kind of something Alexander Payne likes to focus on. People in his films are often at some sort of breaking point in their lives. What do you think, Mike? Well, one reason why I prefer this film to Dead Poets Society is this film has a protagonist who's anything but a, a genuinely and entirely good guy. He, he's he's a deeply flawed personality in a lot of ways. But, you know, I think it's realistic in that respect because, well, I won't go into his, the character's full background and biography, but he's had some disappointments and life hasn't been everything it could have been, etc. So he has re some reason on a personal level to feel kind of cynical, uh, kind of jaded that way. And and he's been teaching for many years now at, at, at this school. And so unlike Dead Poets Society, which has a more idealistic approach to the material, in this one, um, he really is that, I'll use the word curmudgeon again because it's used in the film too, that he's just, he's kind of taking it out on his students, if you will, whatever frustrations he's had in life. And not that you and I have ever done that, but we can kind of enjoy watching some other guy do that in the way we haven't. And some of the lines are just like, so darn funny. Like he says things in class that I think would have you meeting with an HR counsel or something because stuff you would never get away with in the classroom, but he does. And the verisimilitude there extends to Marie's earlier point, very well stated that it was really shot, not just on location, but like really on location. So you know you're in an actual private boarding school. When it's snowing, it's not uh, being generated by, you know, snowmaking machines. You know, you just feel like this is the real place. But in the classroom, those scenes are so funny because one of the things he says to the students, because he's always insulting them, he says, listen, you hormonal vulgarians. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that line. And, I, you know, I, I would never dare use it in the classroom. And, and no, I've never even thought it, but I'm so happy that he thought it. 
what I also like so much about Marie's comments is, yes, it actually involves not just the two strong performances, but the third. Uh, Divine Joy Randolph is absolutely delightful as the cook. There's a real substance in, in that performance. And oftentimes, not even in dialogue per se, but in an expression, a take, how she responds to what she's seeing, which because she's serving the meals and also sometimes she's just like walking in and out, but the looks that they get from her. And then when she does speak, you really listen. And this, you know, all joking aside on this, where the film really is emotionally so grounded is essentially in the relationship between the teacher and the student. Yeah, that's the focus. But you know what? She's more than just a third wheel because the story is set in 1970. And there are just enough period references you feel you're in the Vietnam War era. In that respect, the fact that her character, Mary, the cook, she has just recently lost her son in Vietnam. And those scenes are heartbreaking. We just get a sense of what this means for a parent grieving a, a dead child and that it, it, it's never going away. You don't just suddenly wake up one day and you, and you bounce back or something. It's with her. It's that burden. And the times when she openly shares that, of course, but other times when you just kind of sense it and the fact that, well, if she's looking melancholic or this and that, think about what she's just been through. And that helps to keep the film overall grounded. You know, you really feel like you're in that time and place and with these particular characters. And even though Marie and I talk a lot about films that are running long, this is 133 minutes, but I could have spent another 133 minutes with these characters. Uh, I really had settled in with them. And, and it's so at odds with so much other contemporary filmmaking, which has a kind of whiz-bang sensibility in terms of storylines and special effects and this and that. The ultimate special effects are other people. I know I'm sounding like a Hallmark card, but it is sort of like that. You just, you just have people that, you know, flawed as, as they might be, there is, you know, genuine substance and goodness and, and all those things we want to see in people. And yes, even even in, in the Paul Giamatti school teacher, you can understand and empathize with him in terms of the disappointments he's had in life and where he is now. And individual scenes that Marie singled out, I, I've also singled out in other conversations I've had about the film. There's that liquor store scene, which, which again, sometimes scenes are so real, they, they, they are real, essentially. As Marie points out, you know, get an actual employee, get someone who actually does that. And without even knowing that, you kind of sort of know it as you watch that scene. They go into a liquor store and the line, it's not just the staging of it, it's the timing, it's the intonation. This is where a director has a really sensitive ear to how a line is delivered and the timing of it. You don't want to hold a scene like that too long, but by the same token, you don't want to rush it. That's an innate skill that I think Alexander Payne has. Let the scene play out at what I'm calling natural length. I love what you say about settling in because we've talked so many times about a film wearing out its welcome by, you know, going over two hours. But I'm with you. I could have hung out with these people for a lot longer. I was really kind of disappointed when the movie ended because I wanted to spend more time with these people and, and see how they did. Now, the, the line that I remembered that cracked me up when Paul Giamatti walks into his class is he greets them with, you know, good morning, snarling Visigoths. You know, he's an intellectual. He's got all of these high-minded, learned ideas, but he's just so cranky about getting himself across. Curmudgeon is actually the, the perfect way to describe him. Now, I, I wanted to mention uh, what I really appreciated about the movie is the sort of gentle pacing. It does not race it, uh, race through the story, but slowly each of these three characters become more and more fleshed out and you find out their backstories and you find out more about them. And it's all done in a very natural, progressive way. You appreciate getting to know them as if they were real people you were getting to know. I wanted to add also that there's a scene shot in a movie theater, and it is the Somerville Theater that I've actually been to. So while I'm watching the movie, I thought, wait, I, I actually know where this is. I know exactly where this <laughs> is. 
So that was kind of also another absolutely can't plan for that kind of thing when you're making a movie. But as a viewer of movies, when that happens, suddenly it's like a different lane opens up where you, you have an appreciation for the movie. So I wanted to make sure I mentioned to you that we're kind of alluding to the fact that this is kind of a nice Christmas movie to see. It has a cozy feel to it that the director finds nauseating. He finds people talking about this movie being cozy as nauseating. So Mike, what are your thoughts on the feel of this movie, regardless of how Alexander Payne feels about it? Well, I almost want to sort of just push that aside because this is a movie that's not cozy per se, but because you care about these people and you've settled in with them, that's the coziness there. But the word cozy is a loaded one because it almost suggests a sort of armchair comfort, a pablum, all sorts of terms that I usually use disparagingly. And so I can understand why somebody would balk at the actual word cozy. But if we could find a synonym for it, that, you know, maybe I'd be more comfortable that way, because it seems to me that this movie's uncomfortable at times. And yet it's so convincing that we care so much about the characters, et cetera, et cetera, that that's the coziness from my perspective that we said and also the fact that when i alluded earlier to the period setting just how deftly he handles that like some period pieces club you over the head with it like and much as i love the music from that era sometimes there are movies where it's like relentless like okay, okay what what was the top 40 in that year and it's just like it's too much almost right a kind of overkill and even on the one hand i love the music but i mean okay i get it i know we're in 1970 this movie is very selective about the period touches but when they hit they really register uh, you know as i mentioned you know obviously with the vietnam references coming up from Mary's character most poignantly but there's some like inside baseball moves here some some like you know movie buff moves that uh, certainly Alexander Payne can appreciate and and film teachers can appreciate too for me it was like for instance the, the, the uh, Payne actually uses the old MPAA uh, rating card at the beginning of the film like well, how that rating card would have read back in 1970 he actually uses it now do you need that no of course not it's what i call an incidental pleasure uh, it helps make the movie cozy for me i feel like ah look at that if i were seeing this movie in 1970 that would be the rating card for it. And likewise, in a, in a, on a more um, a serious level throughout the film, in terms of the look of it, we've talked about location shooting and real snow and all those things, uh, but also the fact the film itself was shot on 35 millimeter. So it actually it actually sort of looks the way a film would have looked that, that was, was shot back then. And that's the kind of thing that Alexander Payne is really attuned to. And think about it, there have been other directors who were such movie buff or movie geek characters you know think of a quentin tarantino type director robert rodriguez when sometimes when they're shooting a you know a grindhouse type film they want it to look like it's an actual grindhouse film in terms of the film stock and this and that and not that pain uh, pushes it as prominently as they do and it's never like overly obvious but it's there you really feel like this is a movie of that period so again that's you know more kudos to the film for doing that in such a in a student and almost i would say subtle way you can almost don't think about it because it's working uh, and so yes that's coziness for me I want to also mention that there's a small role for Carrie Preston in, in this as a woman who works with Paul Giamatti's character, who almost seems like she's going to be a love interest, but it becomes complicated as things do. People will recognize her from the TV series uh, The Good Wife and The Good Fight. And the reason I mention it is because the character she plays in that is a really quirky lawyer named Elspeth. And there will be in the next, I think it's next fall, a new show out called Elsbeth. So if you're a fan of hers, nice to see her in this role. And she is having a moment. 
I actually had a friend named Elsbeth, and I was so happy to learn somebody else with the same name because it seemed like it was unique. Very quickly before we move along, um, you know, we've mentioned the three principal actors, and they will certainly get Academy Award nominations. I almost wish there could be a fourth one. Maybe there could be for Carrie Preston. Very quickly, her character, she's a school administrator, and you think she's going to be pegged that way, a minor character. She sort of has a crush on Paul Giamatti, God knows why, but she sort of has a crush on him. Um, and it's very tender, actually, the way she's, she's very professional, but you can tell she really likes this guy. But the fact that she has a second job as a waitress, which initially people don't realize she's got this twofold existence. The film, again, the incremental development in this film, that's what we should close out on. The fact that you get to know her, and I know I'm sort of spoiling it, but the fact that you sort of meet her as one thing, and then you realize, oh no, there's more to her than that. That she really cares for this guy, moreover, she has another job, like, hey, needs some extra money, whatever. She can be his waitress, too. Maybe, maybe, maybe the girlfriend at some point, but at least for now, waitress. Yeah, so I think we agree. We both really like holdovers. By the way, do you think it has staying power as a Christmas movie that people return to every year? Well, it's a qualified answer on that because, you know, it's a Christmas movie in the obvious sense. It takes place at Christmas and has more snow than we've seen in Maryland for a very long time. But, you know, it's for like discerning viewers. And I don't mean that in a snobby way. I just mean, I just mean it's not going to be full of easy yucks and this and that. And, and you know, some of the obvious big budget movies that you, you expect at the holidays. It's it's a much quieter film in that respect. So I think for discerning adults, I would think also for discerning adolescents, uh, if, if, if you've had that high school experience, even if it wasn't a boarding school per se, you can relate to a lot of the classroom material. We've all had teachers who were, if not quite like that, at least borderline like that. And I always say like, like a large vocabulary is a mixed blessing because the words he uses against these students, they're learning a lot of vocab terms, right? But some of them aren't very nice. <laughs> yes. So let's move on to Napoleon, which had so much anticipation. I mean, it's Ridley Scott. And just from the outset, Mike, you know, Ridley Scott started off with a movie in his career called The Duelists. Did you feel going in knowing, you know, you're starting with his career with The Duelists? And here we are coming, coming back to that era with Napoleon. Did that affect your expectations of what he was going to do? Well, it did in all sorts of ways. Um, I actually had interviewed Ridley Scott when he was doing Alien in, in 1979, and we talked about The Duelists. And The Duelists is a much better film as a character study, as a period piece. But what I really want to say about Ridley Scott here is I have always admired him as a craftsman. And I don't mean that as a backhanded compliment. He really knows filmmaking on that technical level. And for the historical films he's done, Gladiator most prominently, uh, Kingdom of Heaven, things like that, he really can immerse you in some earlier period. And he, he knows the detail. He knows how to stage things, you know. And so for a big budget spectacle like this, there are battle scenes that, oh my gosh, I'm a 10-year-old kid loving every moment of it. All the murder and mayhem, sure, give me more. You know, someone's going to be beheaded, I'm there with it, you know. So, um, you know, he's he's really expert at all that. But I had very mixed to negative feelings about Napoleon. Uh, essentially, Napoleon comes up short. How does it come up short? Well, in, in, in a few ways. One is, as a history film, it is what I think if you were teaching history or talking about it, uh, you would describe it as a chronicle. And a chronicle is, well, this happens and then that happens. And in the film, there's a relentless quality to that. There are so many famous battles and incidents and all, and many of them are crammed into this film. And you get the, you get the titles on screen, the location of the battle, the date, and, this, and then you see it play out. And then what? Well, the next scene, the next battle. Uh, the film, uh, you know, does a relatively good job with that. But you know what? Even there, I had reservations. There are so many inherently dramatic aspects to Napoleon's career that you don't really need dramatic license. And yet Ridley Scott exercises it here. And I don't want to seem overly stern about this, but watching the 
film, there are things in the film that never happened in real life. So why is he doing this? At the very beginning of the film, we see Marie Antoinette being taken off to her execution. And that's a really well-staged scene. But it's a false scene in the sense that Napoleon, who's not all that well-known at the time, is on the sidelines with the crowd watching. He was not watching her be, be executed. He was in the south of France when she was being killed in Paris. There's some other things like that. The Battle of Waterloo, you know, after that most famous of, of his battles, he did not sit down with the Duke of Wellington and have a heart-to-heart -heart talk across the table. <laughs> so why embellish and, and falsify things there when, when the real record is itself inherently dramatic? So that bothered me there. And then what happens, too, is because so much is crammed into the Chronicle, there's very little analysis. There's very little discussion. Well, who, why, what, when? Uh, you know, it doesn't go into like, those particulars. And, and most crucially, in terms of his personality, Joachim Phoenix uh, makes a striking visual presence. There's some stunning close-ups of him as Napoleon. And some of them are funny, actually, in the sense of, you know, we all know the famous Napoleon hat. But when somebody is, sh is shooting at Napoleon and there's a large bullet hole in the hat, at. It's a great visual. I mean, I, well, I want to have that still image, you know, put it on the wall or something. Uh, but the, the problem with the performance is that and, and with the overall approach is that this Napoleon is so brooding, so introverted, you never really get inside his head to any degree. He just strikes that pose. And maybe he was that way. I, I, I'm not an expert on this. But in movie terms, it's almost deadly at times because there's no character arc. There's no I'm not looking for character growth. I'm looking for some character depth. It's just not quite there. So you end up with this, this uh, chronicle of Napoleon doing one thing after another, and then the film has a parallel track structure. You have all his military events that get chronicled, and then correspondingly, his marital events the first marriage to Josephine in particular. And in the, the film and in the editing tends to jump from one to the other as they move along parallel tracks. But the two are never really interwoven in a way that, that, that would really unify things completely. It's like, well, here's what he's doing on the battlefield. Here's what he's doing or not doing in the bedroom. Back and forth that way. And it becomes a kind of tedious after a while, for me at least as a viewer, because I never felt I was getting into the characters as much as I, I would like to. How about you? Well, I want to give you, you know, the tip of the hat with a bullet in it for the phrase coming up short, because, of course, that's one of the things about Napoleon is he was notoriously uh, sensitive about his height. Agree with you about the cinematography. The battle scenes are incredible looking. But that's kind of what I would expect from Ridley Scott, who managed to shoot this in 61 days. I mean, what a pro. Also, he's a trained artist, so he has an eye for how things should look. And it does look great. I did see this in opening weekend with a French friend of mine who said most of the things you said, which are, you know, that never happened. And, and why did they leave out all of this important stuff? Specifically, she said, apparently Napoleon had a very strict mother. And if they had shown some of his childhood, that would have come out. It would have said so much about why he chose Josephine. It would have fleshed things out. We get a lot of style and not a lot of substance. We don't really find out much about Napoleon that we don't already know. I think there's way too much time spent on detailing every battle, but I understand why he did it because that's his wheelhouse. The thing that struck me was having cast Vanessa Kirby as Empress Josephine. I couldn't help but think about knowing her from The Crown. And my takeaway was that this movie would have been better served to have been given a treatment like The Crown, where you give it 10, 13 episodes that you you know, roll out on Netflix and you make it a mini series. And then you can, you know, each each episode could focus on one battle, but you'd have more time to develop the personalities that you want to know more about. 
Thank you for saying that because Vanessa Kirby gives a really skillful performance here. She's much more interesting as a character than Napoleon, actually. I want her to have more screen time. You know, she was a widow and her husband had been killed during the terror and all that, which is sort of where the film picked up, you know, the early 1790s with the terror. And I very strongly agree with you and your French friend. I could never disagree with a, a French viewer on this one, that it, we need to know more about Napoleon's formative years. I don't know if I want to see him from childhood on necessarily, but you need some kind of referencing. It's just not there. The film sort of picks up with him. It's sort of in medias res. He's, he's already there as a young military officer. He's on the ascendant there. And a lot of things that might help explain his behavior and his attitudes, it's just not quite there. And so what I would have liked, as Marie was saying, is maybe a little less time in the battlefield and a little more time with the, the marital record and, and just a sense of, of the domestic life and so on, because that's potentially quite interesting. It's just not quite there. So the frustration is, in terms of the liberties that, that uh, Ridley Scott takes with things, he does his homework. He knows the material. He, he's really a, you know, a historian in a lot of ways. And so on the one hand, the film is so accurate. And on the other hand, it's sort of like so heedless with how it just disregards or, or manipulates certain elements or makes them up, frankly. One of the things that he gets right is actual battlefield tactics, which I know we would expect from him. But things that are not widely known, but he's absolutely right about this. For instance, if you think about Waterloo, the weather was everything. Historians have always said, you know, Napoleon lost at Waterloo, but what if the battle field had not been muddy. The weather is so important in that scene, and you realize it did affect the outcome of the battle. But in terms of the fight itself, we have this naive notion, and I share the naivete from so many historical spectacles, particularly in that era, 18th century, 19th century. When my army marches forward, I have, you know, a thousand guys line up in formation, and they charge across the field at your side. And your side also has a thousand guys lined up, and we all meet in the middle, and we duke it out, right? Mano a mano. But actual battlefield procedures weren't always quite like that. And what he does, I think, really, really impressively is he shows one of the tactics that the British used which rarely has been depicted on screen, namely the soldiers with their guns held up and, and they're in such tight formation, it could be the Rockettes lining up for their high kicks. But rather than the straight line that we're accustomed to in most battlefield scenes in, in Hollywood movies, um, they form a square. And they, in effect, they, they formed like a fortress there, a human fortress, because if you think about a square with tightly packed bodies, each of them is holding a rifle pointed outward. It'd be almost impossible to penetrate that. You know, if you come marching towards it, you've got gunfire coming back at you. And visually, it's a knockout. When you actually see that on the battlefield, I thought, wow, uh, you know, everything I have against this film in scenes. Things like that, I'm all for it. I think, you know, Ridley Scott knows his history. He knows how to stage it. And those are not small potatoes. You know, that's something that really admirable. So if you like war movies, you're definitely going to love scenes like that. You're also going to love the scenes where they use the cannons to break the ice from underneath the retreating army. And you see not only the holes being blown into the ice, you see from underwater horses and people and blood. I mean, it's such an incredible It's, spe it's spectacular. It's spectacular. spectacular. And, and how can one not think about, you know, Alexander Nevsky, think about the Eisenstein film, the famous battle on the ice. It has affinity there because that's another one where as the armies are charging, you know, they break through the ice and you see people, you know, not just being killed like mano a mano, but they're actually sliding into the icy water. It's terrifying imagery. So and for sure, Ridley Scott knows that. I mean, any any filmmaker knows Alexander Nevsky that way, particularly for battle scenes. And so I, I would love to like excerpt the Eisenstein footage there and put it next to Ridley Scott's. Wouldn't that be quite the mix there? And, and again, this is where I give really high marks to him because that scene is just like some of the most impressive 
impressive filmmaking of the year in terms of technically how you stage that. And I know there's all kinds of CG and this and that, but you know what? As you're watching it, I mean, it really feels like these guys are going through the ice, doesn't it? it re you really see, you don't feel like it's a computer doing. It. You feel like no, this poor guy, his horse, he and his horse just went through the ice. <laughs> yeah, and you and you kind of went with them. So the other thing that's uh, misleading is the advertising line for the movie. He came from nothing when he was actually born in Corsica into a family descending from Italian minor nobility. But Ridley Scott's response to people who complain about whether things are accurate is to get a life. You know, were you there? If not, then shut up. So if you kind of go at it from that perspective, well, you kind of see where he's coming from. He's making a story. Well, you know what? I, I've seen similar and having talked with him, he's very gruff. And, and I'm not saying that in a negative way. He's just kind of brusque and, you know, and he gets things done. Right. He's got a movie to make. You know, he doesn't have time for nonsense. And, and so he has that kind of that kind of uh, aggressive personality, which I like in him, actually. And and I see his point there. Like, you know, he's making a film and he knows the history. So it's not like ignorance. It's the opposite. He And he's deliberately either leaving things out. Or, and I may disagree with his choices, but I can't say, oh, he didn't know this or that. He does know all that. He knows that so well. He knows history the way like when Stanley Kubrick was Stanley Kubrick had planned to make a Napoleon movie and he read hundreds of books about Napoleon and never quite got to it because he was still reading about it I guess Ridley Scott at least knows at some point you have to put the books down and pick up the camera and just do it and that's one thing when you mentioned how quickly he shot this film that's his personality you go out there and, and you just you have to leave some bodies on the battlefield sometimes could be members of your production crew but you know you're gonna get, get this thing done he almost has that sort of old-fashioned attitude among film directors like from the earliest years of filmmaking like you get out there and you may upset some people and you're going to step on some hands along the way. But, you know, you just got get out on the battlefield and you make that movie. And, and I like that about him. There's just that aggressive. And, and, and when the film works, it works extremely well for that reason. It's got this muscular energy to it. You know, it's visceral that way. It really works. So this is a film maybe best appreciated in terms of indiv individual scenes, mostly battlefield scenes. You know, if you could watch this one here and that one there. But in the aggregate, I mean, it runs 158 minutes and it does run long. It does feel that way. Like, oh, no, one more battle. And even doing that, Marie, he doesn't get to every campaign. Like, in it, he doesn't even show the Italian campaign, which was so famous. There's one quick and very funny line dialogue. Oh, well, then we went through Italy and that wasn't a problem. Or like, we conquered them easily. That kind of, it's like a throwaway line almost. Like, we got through Italy in a time. And, and one reason I'm sort of happy they did it that way is because it spends a little more time in Egypt then, right? So it's, it's really great. How can you go wrong visually when you have, you know, Napoleon Bonaparte and the pyramids, you know? It, it has stuff like that, which just is great. I don't even call it eye candy because that's usually a pejorative term, but it's just like it really holds the eye, doesn't it? It really gets your attention when you see that footage. And again, this is where Ridley Scott knows visually how to put a scene together and how to really grab your attention with it. So so again, that's why my mixed feelings about the film. It's some great filmmaking, but a disappointing film. Yes, totally agree. Should have been a miniseries. But that brings us to the end of this episode. But don't forget to check out our other podcast episode at atmhcc.podbean.com. And we'll see you next time at the movies. See you then.